Hey there, welcome to LiveWire. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. This week on the show, we are going to talk about losing things, but also finding things, with New Yorker writer Katherine Schultz talking about her new book, Lost and Found, about the loss of her father, which happened at around the same time that she was finding and falling in love with her wife. Catherine's got a Pulitzer Prize for a piece she wrote about the impending earthquake here in the Northwest, which uh, a lot of us lost our minds over. Then we're going to be talking to Keenan Lowe. He was a former football star who came back to his hometown to coach a high school team and try to refine his sense of purpose. And during that time, he managed to disarm a student with a gun using a hug. It's an incredible story. Then we're going to hear music from one of our favorites, John Craigie. We are so glad you found Livewire this week. So stick around. It all gets started right after this. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of LiveWire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you can call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey there, Elena. Hey, Luke. How you doing? I'm doing all right. You know, I'm hiding in this room right now from this cat that I got (laughs) because she is very adorable, but really likes to climb up the side of my legs and do all manner of scratching. So honestly, while you and I are here doing live wire, it's really the safest that I can be (laughs) in my house. So I'm feeling good about that. She weighs like two pounds and she's controlling your life. Is that correct? I mean, I'm living in terror here in Portland. Cat dad. All right. Are you ready for a little station location identification examination? Yes, 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 yes. All right. This is where I am going to describe a place in America where Livewire is on the radio. You got to guess where I'm talking about. Okay. When gold was discovered in British Columbia in 1863, thousands of prospectors from all over the West surged northward over a route that became known as the Wild Horse Trail. This town is named for the merchant who established a method for crossing the Kootenai River. So this person was getting folks over this river, this Kootenai River. The Kootenai River I know is in Idaho. Yes. Okay, good. You're in the right state. This was also the longtime residence of the writer Dennis Johnson. Oh, is it Kurt Allen? It's No, it's Bonner's Ferry. Bonner's Ferry? No. Oh, no. I'm going to get my writer card revoked. You're supposed to know where every Iowa writing program graduate. Well, he's a big one. So, I mean. <laughs> Bonner's Ferry, Idaho, where Woo-hoo. we are on KIBX radio. So thanks, everyone out there for tuning in. All right. Should we get to it? Let's do it. 
From PRX, it's... This week, writer Katherine Schultz. I think actually a lot of this book, although it is about losing and about finding and love and grief, is actually about how you kind of take the side of joy. And football coach and author Keenan Lowe. In losing my best friend, I ended up saving a young man's life inside a school by following my heart. With music from John Craigie. Well, as a kid, I was the funny guy, so people who knew me as a kid, they'll come to the show and they're like, hey, not bad on the music, you know. <laughs> and our fabulous house band. I'm your announcer, Elena Passarello, and now, the host of Livewire, Luke Burbank. Hey, thank you so much, Elena Passarello. Thanks to everyone for tuning in from all over the country, including in Bonner's Ferry, Idaho. We have a great show in store for you this week, covering a whole wide range of stories and experiences. Of course, we asked the Livewire audience a question going in. We asked, what's the coolest thing you've ever found? Mm -hmm. So we're talking about lost and found on the show this week. We're going to hear those responses coming up in just a few minutes. First, though, we've got to kick things off, as we always do, with the best news we heard all week. This right here is our little reminder that there is still some good news happening out there in the world. Elena, what's the best news that you heard all week? Ah, giraffe news. What's going on with giraffes? Do you know what I would name a giraffe if I had one as a pet? Um, no. Neck Nolte. <laughs> Did that, was that part of your research for your fine book, Animals Strike Curious Poses? Yes. Where you talk about mythical and, and sort of famous animals throughout history? Yes, there were a lot of puns involved. I think Neck Nolte is pretty strong though. Well, this giraffe is named Msituni. And okay. uh, she was born in this year in February at the San Diego Zoo Safari Park. And she had hyperextended carpi which means those, you know those big knobby giraffe joints that they have on their legs? Yes. It was hyperextended to the point where her leg was bending the other way. Oh, no. And you know, when a giraffe is born, I actually saw a giraffe born in the DC Zoo when I was a little kid once. It was amazing. But one of the things I witnessed, the giraffe has to stand up right away. So um, those joints, those taxed joints were are immediately an issue. It's not like a kind of an infancy in a cradle right. situation. And so this is a giraffe who's like five foot 10 and 100 pounds at birth and they had to figure out a solution. So the zoo called the Hanger Orthotics Clinic, which makes braces and other accoutrements for Paralympians and okay. marathon runners. And they found a technician named Ara Mirzayan, who basically got the charge that he had to help this giraffe with this leg issue. And, and I assume this is kind of a non-standard for this particular prosthetics company. They're not dealing with a lot of giraffe knees. No, other extensions of it had done some work with like 3D printing the bill of a toucan, but no, no giraffes. And this is really like load-bearing, <laughs> long, yeah. a real challenge, much longer than any human leg. And so Ara Mirzayan went online and studied giraffes 24-7. They had this big trial and error process that began with like getting leg braces at Target and horse braces. And finally, they made cast moldings of this giraffe's legs and fashioned carbon graphite braces. And you are going to love this part. The braces, they painted little spots on them, giraffe spots on them. Nice. So it blends right in because we don't need this giraffe feeling out of place 
maybe with the rest of the herd. Yeah, I mean, it's not giraffe colored, but it's still giraffe Stylish. printed. And um, a couple of weeks in this brace corrected the issue. Whoa. And I have to tell you, the pictures of this little kind of gawky early stage giraffe in a little leg brace are the cutest thing you've ever seen. And those pictures are now up in the hangar clinic so that Near Zion can show them to kids who are getting fitted for their own oh, orthotics. Oh, that's so great. I know, it's so cute. Move over, Bambi on the ice. Yeah. We've got a new adorable young mm-hmm. animal trying to get their feet under them. Satuni. <laughs> now, speaking of adorable animal photos, Elena, the best news that I saw this week comes out of Southeast Tennessee where uh, Julie and Jimmy Johnson had gone to bed for the night Mm -hmm. and woke up to quite a surprise, a pretty large dog sleeping in their bed that Uh. was not their dog. In fact, they have three dogs. One is named Hollis, one is named Jupiter, and one is named Zeppelin. And this dog that was in their bed was not any of those dogs. And I don't know if you've had a chance to see the photo. This dog, it turns out its name is Nala. This dog, Nala, just sleeping in these complete strangers' bed has the most beautific look on its face. Like, it is totally and completely comfortable in this environment. In (laughs) fact, Julie said, my husband pulled the blankets up a little bit, almost like to protect him. And at that point, the dog got even further up on our pillows and snuggled in and was just 100% content being there. Full on Goldilocks. It was just right, that bed. So, I mean, what do you do in 2022 when you wake up and there's a just random dog in your bed? You take pictures of it and you put it on Facebook, Uh. which is what Julie started doing early in the morning in Southern Tennessee. She just took these pictures and then posted to Facebook This is the weirdest post that I've ever had to make, but does anyone recognize this dog? And of course, it it spread pretty quickly, and it didn't take long before somebody reached out, somebody named Chris Hawkins, who said, yeah, that's my dog. Her name is Nala. We were walking Nala uh, last night right before a thunderstorm happened, and Nala is very, very afraid of thunder. And so at some point, Nala slipped out of her collar, ran into the woods... (gasps) And then in the middle of the night, they think, during the thunderstorm, because she was freaked out, she snuck into this house and got into the bedroom and got into the bed. She is Goldilocks. (laughs) What, What people are truly mystified about is how the other dogs... Zeppelin and Jupiter and Hollis didn't notice this. Yeah. what? <laughs> you got to brush up on your guard dogging. Like <laughs> this big dog, Nala, comes in and gets in the bed. <laughs> the cutest part of this story is that now these two families are actually friends. Aww. And all four dogs have like had play dates at the dog park. Oh, sleepovers too. <laughs> yeah. So Nala getting out of that thunderstorm and making some new friends. That's the best news that I saw this week. Hey, if you want to get even more good news in your week, please check out our podcast, the Livewire Best News Podcast. It's a whole show just dedicated to fun, feel-good stories. You can get it wherever you get your podcasts. All right, let's welcome our first guest over to the show. She's a staff writer for The New Yorker, where she won a Pulitzer Prize for her piece, The Really Big One, about the seismic risk here in the Pacific Northwest that... um, 
really still lives rent-free in uh, most of our heads, if you read it. Uh, her work has also appeared in the Best American Travel Writing and Best American Food Writing. Her latest book is Lost and Found, a Memoir. Take a listen to this. It's Catherine Schultz, recorded in front of a live audience last month at the Holt Center for the Performing Arts in Eugene, Oregon. Catherine, welcome to the show. Thank you. This book is, first of all, it is absolutely incredible. I can't say enough about it, and it has so many different elements to it. It's, in a way, sort of a two-parter. It talks about uh, the, the loss of your father. It also talks about you finding the love of your life. It's sort of woven together at the end. I'm curious when you thought that this life experience is something that could make a good book. It was the love, <laughs> as it so often is. Uh, I had written a little bit about my father's death uh, not long uh, after I lost him. Uh, and I wrote about it in the context of losing all these other things, keys, cell phones, elections. It was a bad year. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I didn't really want to spend two, three, four years of my life uh, just thinking about grief. Uh, but there was this moment when I realized, ah, well, there's this mirror image story I could tell that... Mm would kind of explore the, the category of discovery. Um, but, but that would have the emotional heart um, of, uh, of a love story at the core of it. And that, to me, started seeming awfully interesting. Um, you also really go into a bit of a deep dive on just the science of losing things. Mm. Starting with the fact that a lot of us don't really fully understand the origin of the word lost. Yeah, yeah I was quite surprised by that. Um, you know, when we say something like, I lost my father, I had just always assumed that that was, frankly, a euphemism, like saying, oh, my father passed or whatever. But it felt really right to me, and I don't normally like euphemism, so I got kind of interested in the word, and it turned out I was completely wrong. Actually, originally, the very earliest use of loss when it showed up in the English language uh, had that sense of being separated from someone you love or, or, or being bereft in a sense. In fact, that, that word lost is related to the lorn in forlorn. So mm. it's, it's always had this note of real grief and sorrow inside mm. it. Is it um, true that the average person loses nine items a day? I That's mean, in this book, and I was shocked by that. It's quite shocking. Yes, according to like insurance companies and places that bother to gather information like this, I like to think that at least two members of my family have skewed the average so drastically <laughs> in the direction of loss that the rest of us only lose like two or three things a day, but uh -huh. apparently it's true. Um, you, you write in this book about the sort of two theories as to why we lose things, and, and one is kind of scientific and the other is, I guess you would say, Freudian in some way. What are the, what are the theories on that? Yeah, I mean, the short version is I think they're both kind of unsatisfying, but the, <laughs> the scientific one is, you know, our, our minds are fallible, as you might imagine, and, and we fail to either encode a memory of where we left something, or we encode it just fine and we fail to retrieve the memory, and so lo and behold, like, who knows where my cell phone is. Um, the, the psychological one is actually, frankly, much more interesting, um, but I'm personally inclined to think it's bunk. Uh, that's the theory that, you know, you only lose something that you just want out of your life. You know, that's the Freudian idea, that's right? That's the Freudian idea. Like, I lost my cell phone because I'm tormented by modern technology, mm. and I, or I, there's some text message in it I can't bear to read, and so, you know, it goes missing, and the minute I resolve my deep emotional issues about cell phones, it will, you know, rematerialize <laughs> in my life. That's happened for me never. <laughs> uh, we're talking to Catherine Schultz about her book, Lost and Found. This is Livewire Radio coming to you this week from the Holt Center right here in Eugene, Oregon. We will be back in just a moment with more.
Hey, Elena. Hey, Luke, I didn't see you there. It's that time of year again. My seasonal allergies are back. Oh, congratulations. But also, it's our spring member drive, which is happening right now through May 17th. Oh, I like that much more than seasonal allergies. Yeah, if you are not yet a member of Livewire's League of Extraordinary Listeners, well, now is the time to do it. Why? Well, because this League of Extraordinary Listeners uh, is what keeps the lights on over at Livewire Inc., uh, which is definitely not the association that we are part of. I'm probably a 501c3. They don't let me near any of the paperwork mm -hmm. or bookkeeping, and it's really better that way. Yes. Point is, we... We are only able to keep doing this show because of support from our members, and we would love it if you could join us in that right now. Plus, there are all kinds of sweet perks, including uh, special discounted tickets to live recordings, on-air shout-outs, exclusive content. Uh, and, Elena, uh, one more thing that, of course, we would not be a self-respecting public radio show if we didn't offer this. If we didn't offer the most iconic public radio swag of all time, a tote bag. True iconic status. Yeah, but it's not just any tote bag. This is like a really good tote bag. It's got a second zipper, an internal zipper. Yes, whatever you want to put in the tote bag, that's your business, okay? What we're mm -hmm. here to talk about is you keeping Livewire going. So head on over to livewireradio.org to see the various member levels. It does not matter how much you are giving every month to Livewire. It just matters that you do it because it goes a long way for us. So thank you. Vacations, weddings, birthdays, and reunions. Oh, my, there's so much going on. Get the most out of your spring plans by stocking up on pre-alcohol now. Zbiotics pre-alcohol probiotic drink is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic. It was invented by PhD scientists to tackle rough mornings after drinking. Here's how it works. When you drink, alcohol gets converted into a toxic byproduct in the gut. It's this byproduct, not dehydration, that's to blame for your rough next day. Zbiotics produces an enzyme to break this byproduct down. Just remember to make Zbiotics your first drink of the night, drink responsibly, and you'll feel your best tomorrow. Go to zbiotics.com/livewire to get 15% off your first order when you use Livewire at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with 100% money back guarantee, so if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember to head to zbiotics.com/livewire and use the code livewire at checkout for 15% off. Thank you to Zbiotics for sponsoring this episode and our good times. Welcome back to Livewire, coming to you this week from the Holt Center here in Eugene, Oregon. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. We are talking with New Yorker writer Katherine Schultz about her latest book, Lost and Found. Um, this book focuses the first part of the book on your father, who was just an absolutely brilliant man, but also hopeless with losing things, with just whatever it would be, keys, passports, you name it. Is there anything to that idea of the kind of absent-minded genius or that our brains are only capable of, of being good at like knowing about the law or baseball in his case, but not remembering where our stuff is? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm always reluctant to give too much credence to stereotypes, but it is incredible the degree to which my father, despite not actually being a professor, was truly an absent-minded professor. And I did sometimes feel like, well, you know, what's rattling around in your brain? You know, seven languages that you're fluent in all of, you know, he spoke English more beautifully than I ever could hope to, and that was his last language. You know, write all of his kind of legal studies. He was a he was a lawyer. Um, the entire works of, you know, the Western canon, basically. And I thought, well, maybe there's just not room to remember where your other shoe is. It could happen. <laughs> yeah. Your dad's story is really incredible. He was um, born in Tel Aviv. Then you write in the book, and I had to reread this a couple times because I wanted to make sure I was getting it right. You write, in one of the more unlikely trajectories in the history of modern Judaism, they left what was about to be the state of Israel and moved to, wait for it, Holt Center, Germany. <laughs> I mean, for history buffs out there, in February of 1948. <laughs> oh, my God. What? I, I, was t I had no idea that that was, a mi however microscopic, that that was a migration that was happening. It's quite unusual. I mean, there were certainly still Jews in Germany, you know, some who had survived. And then, as it turns out, there were quite a lot of refugee camps in Germany. So some people went just to try to reunite with families there. Mm. But no, no, not my family. They weren't trying to reunite. My grandfather was, frankly, trying to make a book, um, <laughs> which, in fairness, they were desperately poor. Uh, and he had three children by then and, and wanted to feed them. And he had heard, as it turns out correctly, that it was possible to make a pretty decent living on the black market in post-war Germany. So some of my father's earliest memories are, you know, like of being in his dad's sidecar on his motorcycle, basically like being a decoy. He was sitting there, this very cute little round-cheeked adorable boy on top of a stack of like American cigarettes and like, like a camera. <laughs> that's, that's what brought them to Germany. One of the things that comes through in this book is your dad's incredibly kind of ebullient personality and how he just kind of lit up every room he was in. And considering the trauma of his childhood, have, have you sort of tried to figure out how it is that he as a person was able to, you know, push past that or push it far enough into the rearview mirror that he could live, you know, the life that you saw him living? I certainly have thought about it a lot. And in some ways, I think it's actually kind of the, it's very close to the heart of this book in the sense that I think actually a lot of this book, although it is about losing and about finding and love and grief, is actually about how you kind of take the side of joy, even in the face of pain and suffering. And the thing I admired about my dad, it's, it's not like he just was sort of glib and a, a Pollyanna optimist. He just, um, he, he somehow managed to have this, as you say, a bullient, joyful spirit, uh, while still looking squarely in the face that the various woes of the world. Um, how he was like that is a real mystery. I mean, that, that's kind of the mystery, right? Like, yeah. how, how, why are we the way we are? Why are some people able to find joy in those moments? Mm -hmm. And I, I write toward that, but I, if I had an answer, um, they'd be paying me more money to be in a much larger auditorium. <laughs> Listen, next year we're getting over to the, the real, the biggie. Yeah. I promise. That's our, that's our goal. Um, the, uh, we're talking to Catherine Schultz about her book, Lost and Found. The found part of this book is you finding your now wife, um, a couple things about that. One, you describe your first date with her, that some mutual friends had set you up and she was passing through uh, where you were living in, I think the Hudson Valley, and you go out and you have this spectacular uh, afternoon together and you're completely bewitched. And then at the end, you say that you, you were surprised that she wanted to go on another date because you didn't realize or know if she was gay. Mm. What did you think was going on on this date? <laughs> 
impressed you're the first person to ask me that question. <laughs> I know, what was I thinking, right? Like weird, rare, crucial failure of my gaydar. Um, what did I think was going on? Uh, I think maybe there was not sufficient introspection on my part in that okay. moment. I mean, I knew what was happening in my head, which was like, this woman is unbelievably brilliant and incredibly interesting and also strikingly beautiful. And gosh, that shirt looks nice on her and what pretty long fingers. So I, it's not that I wasn't having a, a series of thoughts, but um, I don't know. I mean, it's so funny since you've already blown my cover as the author of the Earthquake piece. The truth is I was on deadline for that piece during that lunch. No. Oh, the, True the... fact, revealed live for the first time. Wow, yes. the the now yes. famous in the Northwest earthquake piece. You were yeah. on deadline for that piece when you met I was the love of like your life. Two weeks behind deadline. <laughs> so in my mind, when I went off to that lunch, you know, we, we I didn't know her from Adam, and it wasn't meant to be a setup. Actually, it was just here's this friend of a friend driving through town. I'll be nice. I'll go have lunch. But when I set off for that lunch, I was like. 45 minutes tops, you know, <laughs> yes, I got to eat something, but so fine, I'll meet this stranger. And then, of course, four hours later, there we still are. But it's safe to say I was not, you know, was not on my game that day. There were two seismic stories unfolding in your life at that time. <laughs> Can I get a rim shot? No, okay, I don't deserve one for that. Um, uh, the way that you write about your, your wife is like it gives like Neruda a run for his money. Like it is really just one of the most beautiful descriptions of, of two people falling in love and how much a person can love another person and the reasons why they can love that person. I mean, it's just really gorgeous. I'm curious though what it was like for you to write that about the person you are currently in a relationship with and for her to read it later. Because this is a, you know, a hit book. And it's very personal, the stuff you're talking about. And like, had you told her all of that stuff before you wrote it? Like, I like this about you. And with that one time I saw you in the sunlight doing this, like was, what was her, what was the impact on her of reading this? Well, you know, I must say she is a very patient person. <laughs> you know, the truth is there was no indication when we met or frankly when we married that I was going to go off and write a memoir. It's not really my thing. I give you, you know, seismology. That's kind of my thing. Um, but, but then I went and wrote it. And um, <laughs> for me, it was completely delightful, to tell you the truth. I, nothing turns out to be more fun to write than a love story. Uh, and, and, you know, I would... Every day I would sit and kind of work on whatever section I was working on uh, of that love part of the book. And then at night I would take it up to, to bed and kind of read it to her like a bedtime story. And um, it, was, it was delightful, honestly. And, you know, to her great credit, she edited me the way she always edits me, which is to say, like, that's going on too long. But she never <laughs> once said, could you please just not? You know? <laughs> would you ever have like a not great day? Maybe, you know. A disagreement about something and you'd be thinking I gotta rewrite some of this stuff <laughs> <laughs> I have to say I haven't had any second thoughts about the love section and I hope never to do so <laughs> one thing that I am but curious about is that you only use your wife's first initial for the book um, C I'm curious why you made that decision uh, well, certainly not to keep a secret. My wife is the amazing Casey Sepp, who was on this very show well, right. some years ago. Who wrote Furious of... Hours, the exactly. incredible book about Harper Lee. Um, uh, yes, yes, that's, that's right. right. Yeah. That's, the, yes. that's C in this book is Casey Sepp. But, but I'm curious what, why you chose to be a little bit um, you know, nonspecific. You know, the truth is part of why I uh, shouted out my wife's patience is she actually is a more private person than I am. And I, I think it was she did sort of raise her eyebrows when I embarked on this project, um, but raised them quite privately. <laughs> mm. and, and I felt when I sat down 
The truth is, when I very first tried to do it, I actually, the first scene I wrote, there was no name at all. There was just pronouns. Um, and then it turns out to be grammatically completely unsustainable to do that for more than like six paragraphs. So I gave up on that, but I somehow felt like, well, you know, it, it, felt, it felt right in the way some choices sometimes do in writing. Like, okay, you, you can have this much of her, and, and it's true, and it's, it's honest, and, and she would sign off on it as well, but, but there's all the rest too, and, and she gets to keep that, and I get to keep that, and her family gets to keep that. So it was a little mm. tiny nod to, you know, memoirs to some extent are always acts of withholding as much as they're acts of divulging, and I, huh. on her behalf and mine, withheld a little bit. It seems like a big theme of this book is that the loss that we feel, like particularly when we lose people, is because we found them, mm. you know, and that that's the kind of essential tension of, of life is that, that feeling like you can really only feel the loss of somebody who you found and who made the impact that you know, your father made in your life. Where do you sort of land on that towards the end of the book? Or what are you hoping to kind of say about that? I suppose that it's worth it. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that um, we cannot ward off all loss. Some of them are just baked into the terms of our existence. Uh, and, and frankly, the hardest ones are baked into the terms of our existence. Uh, I hate to break it to you here on this lovely and actually mostly comic and lighthearted night, but you guys are, you're going to lose it all. <laughs> no, you're you're going to lose your loved ones, you're, you know, you yourselves are going to die. And uh, I, I guess for me, I do feel that um, there, there's something useful about that knowledge, which is that it the fact that we're going to lose everything does, I think, remind us of how precious it is and remind us to cherish it while we have it and, and to tend to it and, uh, and, and pay attention to it. You know, these are all actually very cliched lessons, but somehow they're impossible to retain. So I, I became the 450 billionth writer to try to write about them. <laughs> but but in, a, in a really incredible way in this book, I can't recommend it highly enough. It's lost and found. Catherine Schultz, everyone. That was Catherine Schultz, right here on Livewire, recorded live at the Holt Center for the Performing Arts in Eugene, Oregon. Her latest book, Lost and Found, is amazing and is available now. This is Livewire. Uh, as we like to do each week, we ask the Livewire listeners a question because we're talking about losing and finding things on the show this week. We ask, what's the coolest thing you ever found? Elena has been collecting up those responses. What are people saying? Okay, uh, how about this one from Jess? When I was a teenager, I found a steamy love letter written to my mom before she met my dad. She was so mortified, it really cut down on the lectures she gave about me and my boyfriend. (laughs) I don't know who should be more scandalized by that. Like the the mom or maybe the, the dad realizing that the mom had not given away her collection of steamy letters from previous yeah. relationships. <laughs> like, you know, I don't know how old uh, Jess was at this point, but it's like, let's just assume, you know, there's a good 15 years into this marriage and then we're still finding letters from before the marriage. Was this like plan B? Yeah, I think I heard once somebody saw some like super steamy letters. Like they were like, oh, here's a letter that grandpa wrote to grandma when he was away <laughs> in the war. And then they opened it up and it was like NSFW. <laughs> I think we assume that only in the modern era did we start having amorous thoughts. But I think we're just transmitting them maybe through different devices. Mm-hmm. You know, they in all those Civil War docs, it's always, the, my dearest Elizabeth, I hope this morning finds you well as like a Shokin farewell plays behind, but I'm sure a lot of those letters 
we're pretty racy. Yeah. Uh, what's uh, something else cool that somebody found? Uh, this is a really interesting one from John. John says a monkey wrench that was used to repair steam locomotives. So it's this deep, heavy wrench from, I guess, the previous century, early to mid 20th century, 1900 to 1955. This person just found this very specific and giant monkey wrench just like I think he found it on... in the library uh, next to <laughs> Colonel Mustard. <laughs> <laughs> That's a Clue reference, right? You know, I don't know how, I've never seen the movie Titanic and I don't know how to play the game Clue. Those oh. are my probably two biggest cultural blind spots. You probably do both at the same time. It's a long movie. Right? And also they kind of seem like they almost exist a little bit in the same, you know, time period. Yeah. What's, uh, what's something else cool that one of our listeners found? How about this one from Mark? I thought I'd found the Fountain of Youth, but it turned out to be really good root beer. <laughs> I want whatever Mark's having. <laughs> Isn't that root beer? <laughs> I know, right? I mean, is the, has the root beer fermented? Was that, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> was that part of what made it so magical? Is there Who an knows? infusion happening? Yeah. I need some of that root beer right now, actually. Thank you to everyone who uh, sent in responses to our audience question this week. Hey, special thanks this episode to Amy Vanderzanden and Paul Beck of Portland, Oregon. Amy and Paul are part of the Livewire member community and are generously supporting our show with a donation each month, which we are so thankful for because it is genuinely what allows us to keep this whole thing rolling. So a big thanks to Amy and Paul for supporting Livewire. This is Livewire Radio. Thank you so much for tuning in. We know it's been a tough week for everyone. We've got a really interesting interview that we wanted to play next. It's with Keenan Lowe, who was a college football star who ended up coaching at Park Rose High in Portland when something happened on May 17th, 2019. Uh, it's an incident that he writes about in his new book, Hometown Victory, a coach's story of football, fate, and coming home. And before we get started, we wanted to let you know that this conversation does mention suicidal ideation and gun violence at school. So please do listen with care. Uh, this is our conversation with Keenan Lowe, recorded at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon. Hello, Keenan. Hello. Welcome to the show. Now, you were a star athlete, so you probably did a lot of interviews. But what is it like doing like book interviews versus I caught a touchdown? in the Orange Bowl interviews. Yeah, usually when you do an athletic interview, it's, it's about the game that just got played, and no game is the same. But at this point, I've done the same interview about 18 times in the last two days. So, Do you want to put some pads and, like, eye black on just so it gets you back in that comfortable Those space? Those days are gone, man. Those days are gone for me. So I'm, I'm excited to be an author now. Yeah. Cool. Well, congratulations. The book is a really good read. And the, the book is a great read, and, and of course, the, the crux of it is this incident that happened at Park Rose, which we'll talk about, but really the book also goes through your life and experiences, and, um, yeah, well, for instance, the thing that brought you from uh, working for the San Francisco 49ers, you're, like, on, you know, a track to maybe someday be an NFL head coach or something, and then something happened that ultimately led you to come back to the Portland area. What happened? Yeah, I was on a good path. Fresh out of college, I got a, a job in the NFL 
worked for the Philadelphia Eagles and, and then worked for the San Francisco 49ers. So I was fresh out of college on a nice career path. And then I get a call from home and it's one of my friends and, and uh, he tells me our, our best friend Taylor Martinick passed away of an mm. opioid overdose and, and fentanyl uh, ended up taking his life. Mm. So in that process, I, um, you know, life happened fast, you know, and I, I came home to, to mourn and, and be with my friends and family. And then when I was home, everything started to make a little bit more sense being around the people I loved. Mm. Uh, the career and the money and, and that path that I was on didn't really matter so much because I just lost my best friend. So I came home and I decided I was going to move home to, to continue to, to search for whatever I was missing for. And, and in that process, I found a school that was on an 0-23 game losing streak that hadn't won a game in three years at Park Rose High School. A bunch of tough kids in a tough part of town. And, you know, they were a, a, a school, a team without a coach, and I was a coach without a team. So it kind of it worked out that way, and, and I was blessed to find them and, uh, you know, make an impact there. How, how, do you, how do you turn a team around that has lost that many games in a row where a lot of the kids hadn't played football before, and then you ultimately, like in two seasons, right, got them to their first ever playoff win at the state level? How do you actually get these kids to perform? And don't say give it 110%, because that... <laughs> Save that for uh, the uh, sports interview. That is a good recipe, though, for success. <laughs> no, but I mean, I just don't even understand how you teach kids, how you coach kids up and get them, like, running, catching, <laughs> throwing that much better in two seasons. How did you do that? I think it comes down to trust and just me being the adult in the situation, the coach and the, the mentor to those young men in that, in that program. And, you know, I showed them that I was willing to commit to them and, and fight their fights with them, that I was willing to show up day in and day out with them uh, before I ever asked anything of them. And then once I started to show them uh, that I was there for them and, and willing to fight with them, uh, they decided to trust me. And once they started trusting me and I started sharing some of my story of, of why I came back home, uh, stories about my friends and, and, and stories about me playing football and those things, um, you know, that trust continued to build. And, and once you have trust with, with, especially with a young person, uh, once you have trust with them, then they'll do anything for you. You know, they'll run through a wall for you. And, uh, you know, as a coach, I tried to commit as much as I could to them, and they returned that favor. Um, now, you uh, were the football coach. You were also the track coach. And then you were one of the security guards at Park Rose, which you write in the book was, uh, to some degree, just because you liked being kind of at ground level with a lot of those students, seeing them in the halls, both your players and just other students at the school. Uh, I'm curious, what is a regular day like as a security guard at a public high school? Like, what are the calls you get called out on typically? Every day was different, I'll say that. Uh, some of the calls were calls to break up fights and escort kids to A and B places. It was a, a job that was a very thankless job, but, but once I started to really do it and once I started to live it and, and be with those kids day in and day out from 7 a.m. to 4 p.m., you know, I really started to see what they go through uh, on a daily basis, and I really started to see the struggle some of those kids were really fighting every single day. Well, and that obviously became extremely relevant on uh, this day in May, back in 2019. They asked that you would uh, go to a classroom and escort a kid out of the classroom. Did you know why you were uh, going to be taking this kid somewhere else? 
No, unfortunately, I didn't know. But like I said, that was just kind of the job. It was security. Can you please go do this job for us real quick and bring the student here? And that was pretty much all I knew. So it was uh, it was pretty surreal when I got there. Because you get to the class, and he's actually not in the classroom, this particular student. And you're asking around, is this guy here? And they say no. And then you turn around, and he comes into the classroom and basically pulls a shotgun out. What goes through your mind? Yeah, I'm, I'm in the classroom for about probably 30 seconds um, asking where the kid is. And, and 30 seconds later, I'm probably four feet from the door, just on the inside of it. And that door opens up, and there's a young man. Uh, with a big coat, and he pulls out a shotgun right in the doorway, probably about four, four or five feet away from me. So it was, a, it was like a movie. Everything seemed to go slow motion, and I was able to, to think very clearly for whatever reason, um, and I was able to analyze it really quick and see the look in his eyes first and foremost, and I could tell it was a young man that needed help, a young man going through a mental health crisis. And, uh, you know, kids are obviously screaming, and, and uh, it was a really scary situation, but for, for whatever reason, my instincts told me to stay calm. My instincts told me to go lunch for the gun. And once I grabbed the gun, we kind of wrestled around the classroom and spilled into the hallway. And that's kind of where that viral video uh, starts there, mm -hmm. where, where I'm able to take the gun from him and hand it off to a teacher. And then ultimately, I decide to give him a hug. When you were... When you were grappling with that gun, I mean, I think it's uh, important to clarify that this student was uh, attempting to harm themselves, and they pointed the gun at themselves. And something I didn't realize until I read this book that was remarkable was uh, they pulled the trigger, and it clicked. Yeah, it was a scary situation. Like, what are the chances of that shotgun jamming in that particular way? Yeah, one, one in a million. You know, there was some divine intervention, I would like to think. Yeah, and when you look at just the whole story in itself, and even just my whole journey, mm. I, you know, what are the chances I'm in that exact spot at that exact moment for that kid going through a mental health crisis that decided to do that on that exact day? Yeah. And then the only reason I ultimately, how I ended up at that school is because I lost my best friend. You know, I, so yeah. I lost in losing my best friend and, and him losing his life. I ended up saving a young man's life inside of school by following my heart. So yeah. it was really special and and uh, it was really exciting to put that into words. Yeah. I heard this story, you know, three years ago, uh, and I was so excited when I learned that you had written a book. And it just makes me so curious, having told the story on TV and, and for people and for reporters for so many years. How did you feel about the opportunity to put it into words and how did you approach it? Because it must be so codified by the time you get this book opportunity. Yeah, it was, it was really cool to figure out that structure and, and be creative in that way. Mm. And, um, you know, that moment, a lot of people have seen that and I've gotten mm. thousands of messages through the last few, few years saying thank you and whatnot because they've seen that video. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I like to think that there's a whole bunch more that led up to that yeah. video, you know? And that was what, exciting to be able to put that into words. Yeah. You know, whether it was stuff I've learned when I was a kid, growing up with an awesome single mother who's here tonight. Yeah. Hey, yeah. shout out. And, 
and, and learning from awesome coaches that I've played for and got to coach under in the NFL and then the experiences I had with, with my best friend. And, and, you know, I've just been through so much in life. You know, I, I had kids that were, that were homeless that mm-hmm. I coached at Park Rose. I had kids that had anger issues that went to, went to bed hungry mm-hmm. uh, at that school. And, and uh, so, so my story and the story of, of what happened in that hallway is just is so much more yeah. that led up to that moment where all that led up to, to my instincts telling me to just take care of this young man, hug this young man, and tell him that you care about him. And, and you know what? When, when you tell someone you care about him, you don't know how, how far that can go for that person, whether you know him or not. Yeah, yeah totally. Um, what is it like for you to have this probably be maybe the defining kind of moment of your life? Because you've been talking about how this was a journey for you of becoming Keenan Lowe, who could be in that moment present enough to do this thing. But that isn't your whole life. That this is this was two minutes of your life that is now the thing that a lot of people know you for. What's that like for you to have a quick moment be what you are known for? Yeah, it, it it's pretty cool. But before that, I was known for being a good football player at Jesuit High School, and then I was known for being a good football player at the University of Oregon. Then I was known for being a young coach. And then you know, so it, yeah. so it, so it just changes. You know, this journey of life is you know you only got one of them. You know, and and. For my life, I've decided to do good things for, for people that, may, whether I know them or not, I'm going to continue to, to treat people kindly. And, and I figured out in my life, it, the, the nicer I am to people and the, the more kind I am to people, all of a sudden, people are really nice to me, too, and it feels good. So mm-hmm. it's a pretty simple recipe that, you know, I think everyone can, can solve that, you know? Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. it's... Um, it's been a real honor getting to talk to you, Keenan. Thanks Thank again you. for all you've done. Keenan Lowe, you. everyone, right here on Livewire. That was Keenan Lowe recorded in front of a live audience at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon, earlier this month. Keenan's book, Hometown Victory, a coach's story of football fate and coming home, is available now. And his story is being developed by Disney Plus for a new streaming series that they are working on. So keep an eye out for that. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarella. We've got to take a quick break, but don't go anywhere. We will be right back. Livewire is thrilled to be partnering with Portland's own Portal Tea this season, formerly known as Tea Chai Tay. Portal Tea is the premier tea company in the Pacific Northwest, and they make one-of-a-kind handcrafted tea blends like cinnamon churro chai and blueberry cream Earl Grey. Use the code LIVEWIRE, all lowercase, for 20% off at portaltea.co. Our musical guest this week has been called the love child of John Prine and Mitch Hedberg, He's played with Jack Johnson and has gotten fan mail somehow from Chuck Norris. He describes his style as humorous stories mixed with serious folk. His latest studio album, Mermaid Salt, is out now. Take a listen to this. Our conversation with John Craigie recorded a few weeks ago in front of a raucous live audience at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon. Hi, John. Welcome back to Livewire. Thank you. It's good to be here. I love this new album. It is just Thank a you. really great listen. And it struck me that you really are a, a really talented musician. And I think 
there could be a potential for a little bit of that to be lost because you're also a really funny storyteller, Thanks. very folksy, but it's not like you're a guy telling a story and you just kind of are like dinking around on the guitar. Like there's a real musicality to what you do. Do you yeah. feel like every once in a while you want to reaffirm that with folks? <laughs> <laughs> I think that just is coming slower. You know, I think I, as a kid, I was the funny guy. So people who knew me as a kid, they'll come to the show and they're like, hey, not bad on the music, you know. <laughs> you didn't even have to look at the guitar when you were playing yeah. it. You just know all those chords. That's been a slower grow for me, you know. I think with, I'm still learning a lot with music, so I like those kind of compliments because yeah. I feel I feel that way with each album. I feel like I learn a new chord or something. And you know. uh, so you're going back out on tour, and you're going to play the Ryman yeah, Auditorium yeah. in Nashville. Yeah. Uh, with Mary Chapin Carpenter? Yeah. Holy. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. That's pretty cool, right? Is that like on your list of places that, you know, you might dream to play someday? Yeah, I think it's the only thing on the I don't that's not a list I keep, you know. Uh, my goals are usually more lo- like more obscure, but <laughs> I think if if I had a venue dream list, it would just be that one. So yeah. I'm excited to I got to pick a new one now, you know, yeah. after that. <laughs> Um, what song are we going to hear? I want to do this song. It's called Lori Rolled Me a J. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> I got an email this morning from my manager, Phil, and he said, uh, uh, Livewire had some thoughts on the song you were going to play. <laughs> and I said, oh, cool. And he said, they're worried about the lyrics. And then he sent me the quote, and the quote was, hey, Phil, the drug stuff is great. <laughs> <laughs> That made me happy. (laughs) But he says a few bad words in the song, so could he not? And I I said, no problem. I know how radio is. Uh, I've done this before. Not just this, but other things. Sometimes they catch me off guard, which is hard. One time I was at this show. I was about to get on stage, and the guy was like, John, listen, uh... This is going to be broadcast on the radio, so could you not say any bad words? And I was like, oh, man. I wanted to. And he said, which ones? And I said, most of them. So he thought for a second, and he was like, you know what? I'll give you ass. And I was like, excuse me? He said, the word, I'll give it to you, because uh, he said, ass is in the Bible. I said, I don't think I use it in the biblical way. He said, but you want more than ass, right? And I said, yeah. So... He said, well, here's what we could do. He's like, do you have like a song where all your bad words are in one song? Because you could play that first, and then we'll just start recording afterwards. (laughs) And I was like, no. I feel like that would be way more disturbing. (laughs) Right? Like if you came to my show, my first song was just blankety blank, 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 blank. And then I never cussed again. Cool. Let's do this song now. <laughs> this is because I love, I respect radio. I love Livewire. We're doing the Livewire version. So here we go. 
John Craigie here on LiveWire. clipped I got my trump check supposed to last me through the apocalypse I spent it all on some left dish as a you to him and Mike Pence all oh, yeah I don't give a about the burning bush Noah's ark or two of every animal Is this the new flood? Is this the new plague? Is this the rapture or just the first wave? My lungs are clean, at least today I fill them up, Lord, and roll me a jig I can't sleep with Emma anymore. She got too many chickens in her backyard. Took the urban farming thing a little too far. They wake me up each and every hour. She'll kiss her housemate. It's more convenient. What with the lockdown, what with the COVID. It's too much drama for me to play. I stay at home, Lori, roll me a J. to the protest it got crazy you lost your mask running away your friends got paranoid come join my scene make love for two weeks we say it's quarantine don't come and sugar if you won't taste it this summer heat has got a sweat and opiates we watch the sunset from our cage front row seats along the road us to jail yeah. named Cedar I had to get away she was fine as hell but she was too new age she do that Wim Hof don't take no hot showers but I'm a bad boy I need them hot showers she got a crystal for every disease secure the COVID she said it's 5G won't get the vaccine cuz of the tracking chip hell they can track me I ain't do Track me on my couch, track me in my bed, track me texting you, track me left on red, track me in my yard, puffing my life away, gone like smoke, Lord, it rolled me a J. Trump check supposed to last me through the apocalypse. Thank you. That was John Craigie right here on Livewire. His latest album, Mermaid Salt, is available now.
All right, before we get out of here, a little preview of next week's show. We're going to be celebrating pride. First up with James Kim, who's going to share how the language barrier between him and his mother complicated his coming out process uh, and also ultimately inspired his hit fictional podcast, Moonface. Then author Kristen Arnett will share why she specifically likes to be referred to as a queer writer and why 7-Eleven is her happy place. Then Lavender Country's singer Patrick Haggerty will explain how it took his openly gay country band something like 46 years to release their first album. That's all coming up on next week's show. All right, that's going to do it for this episode of the show. A huge thanks to our guests, Catherine Schultz, Keenan Lowe, and John Craigie. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines. Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Heather D. Michelle is our executive director. Tim Harkins is our development and marketing director. Our producer and editor is Melanie Sevchenko. And our assistant editor is Trey Hester. Our house band is Ethan Fox Tucker, Sam Tucker, A.L. Alves, and A. Walker Spring, who also composes our music. Molly Pettit is our technical director and mixer. And Viviana Castillo-Serrano is our intern. Additional funding provided by the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. Livewire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. This week, we'd like to thank members Amy Vanderzanden and Paul Beck of Portland, Oregon. For more information about our show or how you can listen to our podcast, head on over to livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank for Elena Passarello and the whole Livewire team. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Wouldn't it be amazing to have a piping hot episode of Livewire delivered right to your heart and ears each week? Well, guess what? That can happen when you subscribe to the Livewire podcast feed and you'll get the joy of surprising conversation every week. So go ahead and do it. It's super easy. You click on the button at the top of your podcast app and bam, you are Livewire subscribed. And if you're still, you know, feeling the love, if you're enjoying the show, hey, maybe you could hook us up and uh, leave us a quick review. That'll help more people find out about Livewire. And thank you.